Hi, I'm Father Gregory Pine. And I'm Father Jacob Bertrand Jancic. And you're listening to the Catholic Classics Podcast, where we seek to grow our interior lives by learning from the Church's greatest saints and teachers. Each season, we'll read through a great work, explain its spiritual principles, and help you apply its timeless wisdom to your life. The Catholic Classics Podcast is brought to you by Ascension. This season, we are reading Ascension's edition of Confessions by St. Augustine. A few reminders before we get started. To download the reading plan for Confessions, visit ascensionpress.com slash catholicclassics or text CONFESSIONS to 33777. Click follow or subscribe in your podcast app for daily notifications. This is Day 12. Today we'll be reading Book 4, Chapters 5-10 through 10 in the Ascension edition of the book. If you'd like to hear some of our conversations on other subjects, follow up with us and three of our brother priests on the podcast Godsplaining. There you will find weekly episodes on a variety of Catholic themes with occasional guests, scriptural meditations, and special series. You can find Godsplaining with any podcast app on YouTube and at godsplaining.org. All right, before we get into the reading, uh, a quick look at what we'll be covering today. Uh, So we made mention in the last episode of the loss of his friend and how significant an event this was for him at the time, even though the friend is unnamed. There are plenty of important people who are unnamed, including his concubine. Uh, But he's going to consider in this section the reasons for his grief, and he's going to try to sift through all of that with some modicum of, of honesty and with some modicum of penitence, too, for the way that he comported himself. So there are going to be some complicated descriptions about words and deeds both coming to be and passing away. Basically, the point that he's trying to make is that we're human beings and we're limited. We live in time and the passing of time, and God is not. He's unlimited. He doesn't live in time and the passing of time. So just kind of take those different descriptions in stride and don't be too terribly concerned about the technicalities of them. So it'll make sense as we go through it. Okay, let's get started. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Breathe in me, O Holy Spirit, that my thoughts may all be holy. Act in me, O Holy Spirit, that my work too may be holy. Draw my heart, O Holy Spirit, that I love but what is holy. Strengthen me, O Holy Spirit, to defend all that is holy. Guard me then, O Holy Spirit, that I always may be holy. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 5. And now, Lord, these matters have fallen far into the past, and time has eased my wound. May I learn from you, you who are the truth, and let the ear of my heart draw close to your mouth, so that you may explain to me why tears are so sweet to the downcast. Have you, who are everywhere present, cast our misery far away from you? And do you abide unchanging in yourself while we are tossed about by all sorts of trials? Yet, if we did not mourn into your ears, we would have no hope at all. Why, therefore, do we find such sweetness in the fruit gathered from life's bitterness, from groaning, tears, sighs, and complaints? Does our hope that you will hear our cries sweeten our tears? This is true of prayer, for when we thus come before you, we are filled with a longing to draw close to you. But is such longing found when we grieve for something lost and are filled with sorrow like that which overwhelmed me at that time? For I neither hoped that he would return to life, nor did I desire this with my tears. Rather, I only wept and grieved, for I was filled with misery and had lost all joy. Or is weeping, in fact, something bitter from which we solely draw pleasure when we draw back in disgust from those very things which we had enjoyed before? 6. But why am I now speaking of these things? For this is no time to raise questions, but rather to confess unto you, 
Wretched was I at that time, and wretched is every soul that is bound by friendship felt for perishable things. Such a man is torn asunder when he loses them, and then he feels the wretchedness that was his even before he lost them. Such was my state then, and I wept most bitterly, finding rest in my very bitterness. Thus I was wretched, and I held that wretched life even dearer than my friend. For though I would have willingly changed it, nonetheless I was more unwilling to part with it than to part with him. Indeed, I do not know whether I would have parted from it even for him, as we hear told in the perhaps false tale concerning Pylades and Orestes, who would have gladly died for each other or together in order to avoid having to live apart, which in their eyes would have been a fate worse than death. But within me there had arisen a surprising and inexplicable feeling that was all too contrary to this sentiment, for at once I felt immense loathing for life, but nonetheless feared death. I suppose that the more I loved him, the more I hated and feared, like a most cruel enemy, death, which had bereaved me of him. And I imagined that it would swiftly make an end of all men, for it held sway over his life. Such was my state of soul at that time, as I remember it. Behold my heart, O my God, behold my depths, for I remember this well, O my hope, you who cleanse me from the impurity of such affections, directing my eyes ever toward you, and plucking my feet from the snare. See Psalm 25, 15. For I marveled at the fact that other mortal men lived on, while he whom I had loved as though he would never die was in fact dead. It was well said concerning friendship, quote, you were half of my soul, end quote. For I felt that my soul and his were, quote, one soul in two bodies, end quote. And therefore my life was a horror to me, for I would not live as half of myself, and therefore, perhaps, I feared to die, lest he whom I had loved much would completely perish. 7. O madness which does not know how to love men as is fitting to men! O foolish man that I then was, impatiently suffering man's fate! I fretted, sighed, wept, and was distracted, neither resting nor taking counsel. For I carried about with me my shattered and bleeding soul, which itself was impatient at being borne about by me, though I could find no place to give it rest. Not in calm groves, nor in games and music, nor in sweet-smelling places, nor in splendid banquets, nor in the pleasures of bed and couch, nor finally in books or poetry. Nowhere did it find a place of rest. All things, even light itself, seemed ghastly to it. Anything that was not my friend appeared revolting and detestable to it, except for groaning and tears. In those alone I found some small refreshment. But when my soul drew back from them, a huge load of misery weighed down upon me. To you, O Lord, it should have been raised so that you might lighten it. I knew it, but I neither could nor would do so. Indeed, all the more because when I thought upon you, you were nothing solid and substantial to me. For you were not yourself, but rather a mere phantom, and my error was my God. If I looked to lay my load upon it so as to find there a resting place, it fell through the void and crashed down upon me. And I had remained for myself a wretched place, neither able to bear living there nor to escape therefrom. For where should my heart flee from itself? Where could I take flight so as to run away from myself? Where would I not be chasing myself? Yet I fled from my country so that my eyes might be less tempted to look for him in a place where they did not expect to see him. Thus I left Tagast and went to Carthage. 8. Time never ceases its work, and never does it pass by idly through our senses, but rather works marvels upon our minds. Behold, the days came and went one after another, and as they progressed, they introduced into my mind other thoughts and memories. Little by little they restored me, replacing my sorrow with those things that had been delights to me in former days. 
And yet, there followed upon this not new griefs, but rather the causes of new ones. For why was it that my former grief had so easily reached the depths of my soul, if not because I had poured out my soul upon the dust? See Genesis 38, 9. By loving something that must perish, acting as though it never would. Indeed, what chiefly restored and refreshed me was the solace of new friends with whom I shared in a love that was not the love of you. And this was a great fable, a protracted lie, by whose adulterous caresses our soul with itching ears was being defiled. But that fable would not die to me, even if any of my friends died. My mind was seized even more by other things than we did together, to talk and joke, to perform friendly deeds for each other, to read beautifully written works, to be both lighthearted and serious together, to disagree with each other without falling into dissension, as a man might even do with himself, and even when very rarely disagreeing in this way, being sure to retain pleasant agreement all the more frequently, sometimes teaching, sometimes learning, impatiently longing for each other when absent, and joyfully welcoming each other upon our return. These and similar expressions coming forth from the hearts of those who loved and were loved in return, by gaze, tongue, eyes, and a thousand pleasing gestures, were so much fuel to meld our souls together and make them but one. 9. This is what is loved in friends, indeed loved such that a man's conscience condemns itself if he does not love him who loves him in return, or does not love in return him who loves him, looking for nothing from this person other than indications of his love. Thus, we see the source of the mourning that follows upon the death of such a friend with dark sorrows, the heart being soaked with tears and all sweetness turning to bitterness, and also the death of the living that follows upon the loss of life suffered by the dying. Blessed is he who loves you and his friend in you and his enemy for your sake. For he alone loses nobody who is dear to him, to whom all are dear in him who cannot be lost. And who is this but our God, the God that made heaven and earth, see Genesis 1.1, and fills them, see Jeremiah 23, 24, because by filling them, he created them. None lose you except those who depart from you, and he who departs from you, where does he go or where does he flee if not from you, well pleased to you, displeased? For in the midst of his punishment, where does he not encounter your law? And your law is truth as you are, see Psalm 119, 142, John 14, 6. 10. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. Psalm 80, 19. For wherever man's soul turns itself, if it does not turn toward you, it is riveted to sorrows, indeed, even if it is fastened upon beautiful things. And yet, these things would not exist were they not from you. They rise and set. By rising they begin as it were to be. They grow toward their perfection. And then, having reached it, they grow old and wither away. And even if all things do not grow old, they do all wither. So then, when they rise and stretch forward toward being, as quickly as they grow toward their being, they hasten towards non-being. Such is their law. This is what you have allotted for them, for they are portions of things that do not exist all at once, but rather, by passing away and succeeding upon one another, together they complete the universe whose parts they are. And similarly, our speech is also made up of audible signs, though this too is not brought to its perfection unless one word passes away after sounding its part so that another might come after it. Out of all these things, let my soul praise you, O God, creator of all. Yet do not let my soul be riveted to them with the glue of love by my bodily senses. For they go along their way so that they pass into non-being, and they rend the soul with pestilent longings, for she longs to be and loves to take rest in what she loves. 
But no rest is to be found in such things, for they do not abide, but instead are fleeting. And who can follow them with bodily senses? Indeed, who can grasp hold of them when they are at hand? For bodily senses are slow because they are connected to the conditions of bodiliness and bounded thereby. They suffice for the purposes for which they are made, but they do not suffice for holding fast the flow of things as they pass from their appointed beginning to their due end. For in your word, through whom they are created, they hear the decree, come hence and go thence. Okay, so we made mention in the last episode of his attachment, right? So we talked in the introductory episode about attachment and detachment in the Christian life. And then we made mention, you know, in the last episode about his attachment to his friend and then his devastation at the loss of his friend. But here he's going to do a kind of psychological, emotional deep dive and try to determine whether he was more attached to his friend or to his grief. Now, think about our own experience, perhaps at one point in your life, you lost somebody whom you loved very much. And in that moment, you were, you were sad, obviously, uh, devastated even. Uh, but you probably also had occasions where you just wanted to cry, and you might have called up those thoughts so that you could cry. Now, mind you, there's a therapeutic use to tears. But also, I suspect in many cases, it's like, oh, what am I, what am I doing here? Do I actually miss the person? Or do I just like crying? Or am I trying to feel something or anything? Or so I think it's a helpful entree for our own experience as to like, what do we care about and how do we care about it? So Father Jacob Bertrand, take us into it. Your thoughts. Yeah. One of the things in thinking about attachment, detachment, grief, these sort of things, I was thinking of it in terms of, of another emotion of being attached to, and that that's anger. And maybe that's, that might be a little too self-revelatory on my end. Um, but I often, or sometimes I find myself being, you know, angry or annoyed just for the sake of being angry or annoyed rather than at something that is actually worthy of being, you know, angered by or annoyed by. So in reading and in reflecting on St. Augustine's reaction, that was helpful for me to kind of transfer and understand more of like his his sort of reflection and self-criticism of, you know, his inordinate attachment to the grief of losing his friend. And I, it's, it, I guess it's an interesting question to me of, you know, as you've posed it, is he more attached to his friend or attached to his grief? And I think in some ways, given that he's reflecting on, on it in this way and that St. Augustine has been talking about his, his vanity and his sort of like empty show of things, I don't want to say, and I don't think you would or Augustine would want to say that there was no true grief over losing his friend, but there's also, the, you know, as you read his description of how he grieved, it's a bizarre, not a bizarre in the sense of uncommon, but there's a, a strange sort of just grieving for grieving's sake, almost over the top kind of thing. And in the end, like, what, well, what's the problem with that? Well, one, it doesn't correspond to truth. It becomes a sort of like object for us to use, but also it's it's an attachment to something that isn't God, that isn't virtuous, that isn't holy at the end of it. So this is why it's problematic. It's a distraction, a stumbling block from pursuing our Lord. You know, there are times when it's proper to grieve and to grieve hard, we could say, but there are also times when it's, you know, we have to ask what's going on as Father Gregory described. So that's at least in, in thinking about it and trying to situate it and understand and relate kind of some of my thoughts. Yeah. In we made mention earlier in one of the pre-launch episodes about the retractions, the retractaciones, which St. Augustine writes close to the end of his life where he reviews all of his previous works, kind of like a bibliography, and tells us, you know, those things that he approves of and those things that he disapproves of, principally those things that he disapproves of, thus the name retractions. And in this particular work, when he's talking about the confessions, he says, 
you know, he admits to some embarrassment about his descriptions in this section because, yeah, he just says that his grief was inordinate. And he admits to that to a certain extent in his own descriptions within the text itself, like in the confessions. But still, he says, like, I just didn't see it. I didn't see it yet. And now I've begun to appreciate it. So like you said, there's the fact of the loss of the friend. So what do you do as a human person? Well, before death, whether that of someone you love or your own, it's entirely appropriate to be afraid and to be sad and even to rebel against it a little bit because, you know, I was about to say St. Aristotle. Whoops-a-daisy. Aristotle says in the Nicomachean Ethics that it's the greatest of all punishments. And we, you know, we retract in fear from punishment because it's a kind of existential threat. But still, in the, in the context of the life of faith, we have a perspective, an eternal perspective on death. So we can hope for the person who has died for ourselves that we will be reunited with God and with each other in heaven. And that's not to say that it like entirely takes away the grief, but it gives us a vantage whereby we're able to make a certain sense of the things that we're going through and to spare us or save us from a kind of melodrama, which risks a self-absorption or a kind of egotism, which, you know, like isn't just isn't healthy and it just isn't appropriate in the circumstances. So this isn't like an occasion to say, you should accuse yourself of being an excessive griever or maybe a defective griever, whatever. But it is to say that our grief is to be had only perfectly in God, right? Who can give us himself ultimately uh, and assure us of his continued presence both in this life and in the next, provided that we persevere in the righteousness which flows so generously from his divine throne, but also that, that draws us in bonds of fellowship to those who are also justified by his grace. So, yeah, I think it's, it's, you know, it's not just a matter of perspective, it's a matter of realities and of our approach to those realities. But perspective is one way by which to describe it. I don't know if you have yeah, other thoughts on that. Yeah, it's also a matter of sanctification, of being made holy. And this is why St. Augustine reflects on it in the Confessions and in other works, his retractions and these uh, these things, because we have to remember that God doesn't want to sanctify, to make holy, to heal, to perfect just this or that part of us, but to perfect us entirely. And that's, yeah, that's, a, that's an important thing to remember in our pursuit of holiness and in our conversions, because this includes even our emotive responses, however good or not great that they might be, including our grief. You know, so our Lord wants us to grieve. Our Lord grieves in the scriptures. We know that he weeps in the scriptures for those he loves at Lazarus's death, for example. But it means for us that there's there is a virtuous way to enter into all of these things, all of these emotions, whether as I described earlier, using like anger as an example or grief as in St. Augustine's life. So it's not that we're saying, and it's not that St. Augustine is saying not to grieve over sadnesses and loss, but that there is like even a holy way to do this. And that's, yeah, that's not a finger wagging, like you're doing it wrong, but that should be an occurrence and an occasion of hope that even these things our Lord works to perfect by his grace. So yeah, I think it's just an important perspective to keep in mind that it's, it's yeah, St. Augustine isn't correcting himself because he's wholly corrupt, but yet even here the Lord wants to enter in and perfect. And this also, the section is super helpful for clarifying that we should love things in accord with the nature of those things. Now, that sounds like a little bit philosophical, maybe even a little bit jargony when you introduce nature. But what I'm trying to say is that we should love things as they merit to be loved. Okay, so like if you say, for instance, I love, you know, basketball, or I love my family, or I love God. We, we recognize the fact, and this is often remarked by people, you know, by Christians, by Catholics, that we're using the word love there in different senses. We're using it analogically. So it, it's like partly alike, but 
partly different. Um, so you would love basketball in the way of enjoyment and you would love your family in the way of, you know, it's upbuilding in the way of the pursuit of virtue. And you would love God with your whole person in the sense that like you recognize the fact that he is your source, he is your end, and that you're bound to return to him provided only that you consent to and cooperate with his grace. So we're talking about love in different senses. And I think what we see here is that when we love inappropriately, it's going to cause other inappropriate consequences in our life. And, and St. Augustine will say in the next session that it's as if he pours out his soul upon the dust in loving as he has loved. And, and one image that was, um, I heard this in a preaching of Archbishop Augustine de Noia, our brother, and he was, he was describing sin as hanging your heart on something that can't bear the weight. And I really like that because it's a visceral image. It gives us a sense of the weight of our love. But we're meant to hang our heart only you know, in accord with the thing on which we hang it. So again, complicated. But we can hang our whole heart's love on God because he can bear the weight. And we can only hang so much of our heart on created things because they're not meant, they're not intended to bear the weight. So I think that's also a helpful principle to have in mind as we go forward, as we progress in, and pilgrimage with St. Augustine, is that our loves are going to grow. Remember, we mentioned earlier this idea, this passion of to love and to be loved at the heart of all of his different wanderings. So we're and seeking to be purified and healed in our loves, we're also going to determine, we're also going to identify where best we can apportion our love and how best to apportion our love. So yeah, maybe uh, final thoughts on love and love of friendship and how we can go forward from here. Yeah, just just a brief thing looking at what's happening here, right? So St. Augustine also here describes his running from to gas to Carthage. And, and in that too, we see, as Father Gregory was talking, hanging our hanging our love on things that can't bear it or trying to sort of escape things that we can't escape. There's there's a vanity even in that of, of St. Augustine's trying to flee. And so it's a question of like, what do we cling to? You know, do we cling to our own resources? Do we cling to our own abilities or attempted abilities to avoid or navigate or manipulate the realities of our lives? Or do we cling to our Lord who enters into those realities of our lives? And as we're reading through St. Augustine's grief here, it's apparent as to what his attempts were, but it also is through his attempts we can see, well, what is like what is the proper way that we're called to to live and to engage with our Lord and to gauge engage with those whom we love in our lives, family and friends, and those other created things, you know, how is it that we're called to love? This is the big question is like, what are our hearts made for? And how are they made to engage with reality, with God, with others, with with the created things? And I think one of, one of my favorite things about reading St. Augustine's confessions is that we see him make similar mistakes that we all make in our lives. You know, it might be in different ways or these sort of things, but the way by which vanity might get the best of us. Our, our attempts to manipulate and control our lives might get the best of us. And we just see it here on, on sort of full display and vulnerability in one of the great saints of the church. Yeah, and as we made mention at the top of the episode, there's some somewhat complicated descriptions of time and the passage of time. And, you know, like you have to pronounce one syllable and it has to pass away in order for the next syllable to be pronounced. And that the coherence of the word only comes or comes into being or takes shape in the passing away and coming to be of successive syllables, right? So, you know, we can get lost in those descriptions, but the basic point is that the way that we attain to God or the way that we journey towards God is by journeying. <laughs> so as human beings, it's for us to live in time, right? And, and there are different ways to describe that, but basically we need to go step by step towards the Lord who gives us the grace to do just that with a confidence that he alone can impart. 
And so there might be temptations to, to be like angels who just make one choice or to be like animals who don't make any choices. But instead, we're human beings and we have to make those many choices so that we can attain to the end which God has ready for those who love him. And so we see it in St. Augustine. He provides an example of just such. Um, but also in our reading of this particular work, it's a reading in time. It's a reading with him in time so that in our own journey, and our own pilgrimage, we can attain to the goal which St. Augustine secured in sanctity. So... That's what we have for you today. Know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us, and we'll catch you next time on Catholic Classics.